This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Good to see you all. As Emma said, my name is Chris and I am going to stand here. We are, okay, we've said it a lot. We're talking about Oscar Romero and sometimes it's like, okay, enough with the Oscar Romero thing. We're going to do a little bit more with the Apostle Paul today. But just to lay it out again, so we're all on the same page, in the whole season, which is kind of known as ordinary time in the church calendar, we're leading up to Advent, which begins the church season, we're taking our time looking at these different homilies that Oscar Romero preached, which are like short sermons. He was the Archbishop of El Salvador uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And then we take the passage that he used to preach his sermon, and we put those things together and we try to figure out what it is that God might be saying to the people of Kaleo in light of that. So we're doing that again today. Uh, and that's kind of like what's leading us into the first Sunday of Advent, which will be the, the final Sunday in November. So look for that uh, starting I guess uh, a whole journey through the church calendar begins again then. Today, though, what we're going to do is we're going to find ourselves in a passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 24. Uh, it's a pretty unique and, I would say, challenging passage, uh, and I think Oscar Romero will help us understand it as well. And so just before we listen to Romero and then blend the two together to help us practice the ways of Jesus, I'm going to read the whole passage for us because we're going to be in and out of it a little bit, and I want you to hear it in, in one fell swoop. So here we have the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter. It's important to know about 1 Corinthians. He's writing that letter to the Corinthians in response to a letter that the Corinthians sent to him. Right? So the Corinthians wrote a letter, and in this particular part that he's replying to, they had appealed for Paul's support of an enlightened understanding that idols are meaningless. So Paul spends what amounts to a few chapters seeking to provide direction. And 1 Corinthians 9, 10, and 11 kind of unpack what, what idols mean and what they're talking about and why these Corinthians even care about it. But our passage today falls like right in the middle of that. And so here's how it reads, beginning in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. I'll read through 24. It says this, If you think you are standing strong... Be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I am saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? When we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. 
What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than he is? You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Let's pray and we'll see what's going on there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we just thank you that your presence is here already among us, that we didn't have to do anything to make sure you'd show up, but that you are the kind of God who wants to be with us. And so we, we welcome you. We invite you, God, to teach us, to reveal your love to us, to bring us together as your church, as your people. Would you continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you have for us as we seek to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God here at Kaleo? Guide us, teach us, love us, and unify us in your name. Amen. Okay, so pretty good, pretty good passage. You probably got some questions. I've got some questions too, right? Paul, Paul sets this whole thing up by making a connection and this is in the first 11 verses that I did not read. He's making this connection to the wilderness wandering of the Israelites. He makes a couple of allusions along the way, right? The Israelites are moving through the wilderness after they've been set free. And he centers kind of this idea of idols by alluding to their gravest sin, like the worst sin that they had, right? And their grave sin of that wilderness generation of Israelites was their worship of the golden calf, if you're familiar with that story, right? Moses had gone up on the hill, right, the mountain to hear from God. And when he came down, they were having a party with a golden calf that was now what they were worshiping. Pretty interesting place, right? Because all of this happened after these people had experienced God's mighty deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so something happened, right? And they twisted and diverted their allegiance to this golden calf. And so Paul's writing with this in mind, which is interesting because the story is so foundational to the people of God because he's writing to the Corinthians who are less likely to have a full understanding of the Jewish story, right? They're Gentiles. So he's like bringing this consistently together, which is Paul's great work always, is helping us understand what the multi-ethnic family of God will look like. So he's telling stories from one ethnicity to another group of people who might not know the fullness of that story and saying, here's what this has to say for us. So with that in mind, this is what he says again. He says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Which that sounds pretty good, right? Like you're gonna get around that. And really what's Paul saying here other than just don't get too cocky. Like don't, don't get to this place where you think you've got it all down, you've got it all figured out. You don't have to worry about anything else going on. Many, he says, who've been liberated by the goodness of God have given their allegiance to something else or someone else. And so he implores to them, he says, friends, flee from the worship of idols. And then he appeals to their knowledge-seeking ways, which probably speaks well in this day and age as well. And he says, you are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I am saying is true. And so I'll pause there for a second, because I think anytime you start reading through the book of Corinthians 1 or 2, 
You, you get this voice of Paul in your head. And I just want to like name it for a moment. For any of us who have any history with reading anything Paul's ever written, it often sounds angry for some reason. Like he's, he's kind of a grumpy guy is what it feels like, right? And, and I'm not sure why we always get that from him. I, I would argue that he probably isn't as angry as we think he is, right? He, he's like debating with these people who he helped found this church with, and he's elsewhere, so they're communicating via a letter, and they're going back and forth. He sincerely cares about him. I love the way the NLT even translates that for us, where he says, my dear friends, like he's not speaking at them like he's speaking down on them. He's saying we have to pay attention to the temptation to divert our allegiance away from God. So flee from those idols, right? That's I'm just best we can tamp down Paul's uh, angry dad bit on us and just like think of him as a, a friend, okay? We go to therapy for the angry dad bit. We'll try to sort Paul out after that. Okay, so, so he says, decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true, right? And so the biblical scholar Richard Hayes writes in his commentary on this passage that he's trying to get to this idea that we should understand that the Corinthians in their knowing have described this tension, right? They're saying in the letter they wrote to Paul that there's this liberal policy about sharing temple meals that are sensible and realistic in contrast to this like hysterical sectarian extremism of the weak. You could probably say they're saying like, don't you see the ways in which we've put both sides at play here? So certainly it's going to be okay if we eat whatever we want to eat wherever we want to eat it. Paul then turns this language back on them that they were using in the letter, which we'll get to in a moment, but he literally quotes them where they are saying we're allowed to do anything, essentially saying they're free in Jesus to do anything. That's like their argument here. So then he lays out the argument, which is a little complicated, but follow me here. With all this, again, all this in mind, and then Romero's gonna make it clear. 16 through 21, he says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Again, now he's hearkening back, right, to the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? He realizes his argument is leading in the way where he, it's, the gods are pitted against each other. And he's like, no, 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 not at all. I'm not saying that these sacrifice, I'm saying these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God, not on an equal playing field with God is what he's saying there. And he goes, and I don't want you to participate with demons, which I just think is a funny sentence to actually read out loud, right? And he's like, hey, I just also, no participating with demons, okay? So you can hear his like pastoral voice and all of that. He goes, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Don't, do you think you are stronger than he is? Okay, here's what's happening again. 
We're getting into a little bit of demonology here, and, and we'll sort that out in a moment, so don't get weirded out yet, right? Because really what he's breaking down is this. There's this idea that each meal you ever share creates a relation of what biblical writers call koinonia, which is like fellowship of the called, the people connected to one another. Something happens when you share a meal and something happens among the participants and between the participants and the deity honored in the meal, right? So that in Corinth, there are multiple meals happening for different deities or for different lowercase g gods. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian church who shows up at those going like, hey, we can do whatever we want. We're free in Jesus. He's saying, no, something happens there anytime you eat together with one another in allegiance to or honoring whatever deity is present there. Okay? This isn't like the most common experience in our life today. It plays out differently, which we'll interpret in a moment. So once this point is granted in Paul, his argument's pretty irrefutable. Hayes says, the God who demands exclusive allegiance will not tolerate cultic eating that establishes a bond with any other gods or powers. Track, are you tracking so far, more or less? Yeah, okay. And then Paul brings it home, right? And then he says, you say, and he quotes them, you say, Corinthians, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you, Paul says. He says, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So here's what Paul does. He frames all of this through the lens of being concerned for the good of others. This was the thing that the Corinthians had lost sight of. They're like, we can do what we want because we're free in Jesus, so leave us be. He says, sure, but eventually that will lead you down a road where you're not because you've lost sight of your concern for others. And the hinge point to get here is verse 14, when Paul emphatically says, friends, flee from the worship of idols. Okay, so the whole impetus is, Flee from your worship of idols so that you would elevate the concern of others. Like, I would even say the argument in this passage is kind of like just to the point. It doesn't require me to do some like fancy exegesis, so to speak, right? And, and interpret it with like twists and turns. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You worship something other than God, you begin to become like what it is you worship. And now you're hurting the people you are in community with and yourself. So just for the sake of specificity, the question then could be that Paul is raising back to the Corinthians here, has the church community given themselves to selfish idols that are doing harm to themselves and to others? Obviously, the invitation as we look at a passage like this is to ask ourselves the same question. Has the church community given themselves to selfish idols that are doing harm to themselves and others. Are we, are you? As that question lingers for a moment, apparently it's a night of questions, and I started this off great with that. I wanna turn our attention to the prophetic preaching of Oscar Romero to help us suss out our reflective answers. Continue to think about that and what that means or what that looks like. 
And here's what Romero preached in response to this passage in 1978 in front of a room full of El Salvadorians who were suffering under the oppression of their government. He said, we must overturn so many idols. The idol of self, first of all, so that we can be humble. And only from our humility can learn to be redeemers, can learn to work together in the way the world really needs. Liberation that raises a cry against others is no true liberation. Liberation that means revolutions of hate and violence and takes away lives of others or abases the dignity of others cannot be true liberty. True liberty does violence to self and like Christ who disregarded that he was sovereign because becomes a servant to serve others. So, this is me now, not Romero. If an idol is the worship of someone or something other than God as though it were God, we will only be able to pay attention to such deviated allegiance if we follow Romero's plea and overturn the idol of ourselves so that we can be humble. And a place of humility is the only place where we can begin this work that Paul is inviting us to, that Romero's inviting us to, that Jesus is inviting us to. And once we've overturned the idol of self, it's from there that we can join the liberative love of Jesus in toppling the many idols of the day. So here's how Romero goes on. He says, today the idols of the Corinthians no longer exist. Idols of gold, figures of animals, of goddesses, of stars and suns. Today, other idols exist, which we have often spoken of. And I would just insert that to be true here in this day and in the community of Kaleo as well. He goes on to say, he says, if Christians are nourished in the Eucharistic communion, where their faith tells them they are united to Christ's life, how can they live as idolaters of money, idolaters of power, selfish idolaters of themselves. How can a Christian who receives Holy Communion be an idolater? This very year, St. Paul could say to many Christians and to many communities that are reflecting on these words, if you truly believe that Christ is present and that you are united with him at the moment of communion, how is it possible for you afterwards to live so immorally, so selfishly, so unjustly, so idolatrously? How is it possible for you to put your trust more in things of earth than in the power of Christ who becomes present in the great sacrifice? What words from Romero? And I would take what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago, what Romero was saying 40 years ago, and I would contend that we are in danger of repeating the Corinthians' error of thinking there is no real danger of idolatry, as if it doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. We're going to be okay. If there really are no other gods, we tell ourselves, then we can participate casually in whatever customs our culture may deem normal or sensible. 
But could it be that the powers, and in the way I write it, in italics, powers, this is what Paul's referring to when he starts talking about demons, right? This, this idea that there's a, a power at play. What if they've changed their strategy in our day and in our location? What if the temptation to follow the path of the idol is different today than it was for the Corinthians, but is no less present? And I'm sure if you're like me, a thousand different things are stirring. You could think of a bunch of different ways this might be playing out. I'm not even implying that it's a certain way. But Richard Hayes implies this. He says, Rather than seeking to lure us away from the table of the Lord through offering meat, right? Because all of those sins of idolatry that Paul was talking about were these meals. Perhaps we are now invited into quote-unquote temples where the main activity is acquiring wealth by whatever means necessary. And following the trail of pursuing wealth gives birth to all of the other idols that we seem to contend with in our day. And so at the heart of Paul's letter here, in Romero's preaching, they are, in the language of Richard Hayes, raising a warning flag and summoning us to scrutinize our small compromises with the cultural systems around us. Small compromises, right? Because still, that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They weren't abandoning the way of Jesus, They weren't not the people of God, but small compromises with the cultural systems around them. So to begin scrutinizing is the only way we can move toward participating in choosing Jesus afresh and toppling the systemic and personal idols in America among us. We can name them for what they are. There's many. We talk about them often. Could be things literally from capitalism, to racism, to sexism, to homophobia, to poverty. At some point in time, something in there is because some idol is being pursued above the community's need, the good of others. And so as that scrutinizing begins, Richard Hayes offers us one final warning. He says there's two distinct dangers here. The idols have more power than we suppose to reshape us. Think about that for a second. The things that we worship in place of God. And I mean, I mean, it could be so simple. Like for sake of an example of something that I've been writing about and contemplating for a while is just the prevalence of the digital age or a phone or a TV or an iPad or a computer or whatever is being communicated to us by a glowing rectangle gradually will in fact reshape us. That is, that's like just true. Now, that doesn't mean it might reshape us so negatively that we have no idea what God's up to in the world, but it is a thing that is this subtle idol that has the power to reshape us. And he says the other distinct danger, especially according to Paul, is that we're courting the judgment of God. I think the scary part about that is that it's tied up in all of our languages, like Paul is the angry dad mode. Right, So there's, there's this idea that, that God's judgment is like painful and quick and you're gone, like you've been smited, right? 
or it could be that you are actually courting the judgment of God, which means that you will actually have to face that you've chosen something besides God. And you have to face it again and again and again until you come back to the way that God's invited you to go. And so he says, because of that, choices must be made. For we cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Which I just think is like, it's a bit extreme feeling and sounding, but what a great image of the choices we get to make in following Jesus. Will we find ourselves gathered at the table of the Lord? And I think there's this piece in all of this that I want to say too. It's not like these once and for all type of things, right? It's not like you got one shot. It's I feel like that's what's so beautiful about gathering together on a Sunday and eating at an actual table or coming to the table that is the image of the elements is that it's, it's the opportunity to recalibrate your life to the ways of Jesus. Because maybe for a moment in the week before, you diverted your allegiance for, for a moment, a day, whatever it might be, because that's the way it works. Like, that's who we are until Jesus comes again and sets all things new. But the invitation is the love of God awaits to welcome us back to the table of the Lord. Go to that table instead of continuing to feast at the table of demons, so to speak. And so what we do is we prepare then to receive the bread that represents the body of Jesus, the wine that represents the blood of Jesus, and when we eat and when we, in this case, dip, we, when we do that, we are being united with God. We are being reconciled to God. The love that God has for us has invited us back, and now we are one again. But not only that, when we do it together, we're saying that's true of us as a community of people as well. We're reconciled to God and to one another, and we've chosen for this moment in time Stamp out the demon, if you will, and be the people who gather at the table of the Lord. So let me read Romero's words one last time before we go here and before we sing together. He says this, Today the idols of the Corinthians no longer exist. Idols of gold, figures of animals, of goddesses, of stars and suns. Today other idols exist, which we have often spoken of. If Christians are nourished in the Eucharistic communion where their faith tells them they are united to Christ's life, how can they live as idolaters of money, idolaters of power, selfish idolaters of themselves? How can a Christian who receives Holy Communion be an idolater? This very year, St. Paul could say to many Christians in many communities that are reflecting on these words, if you truly believe that Christ is present, and that you are united with him at the moment of communion, how is it possible for you afterwards to live so immorally, so selfishly, so unjustly, so idolatrously? How is it possible for you to put your trust more in things of the earth than in the power of Christ who becomes present in the great sacrifice? So we give Jesus the final word before we come and eat and come and drink. I want to say one more thing over the top of that. That is an invitation to come to the God of love who liberates us to follow in the ways of Jesus' love. It's not coming in the voice to shame us, but to invite us to go this way of Jesus. And when you go that way of Jesus, what Romero is saying 
How could you even participate in the systems that are anti-Jesus in the world when this is what he has for us all along? And thus we begin again after we eat and after we drink to seek to live that way in the week to come. And so there's been a lot that's been said, a lot of questions that have been asked from the very moment we began together. And so let's just be still in the presence of God. And however you want to ask, listen, wait, let's do that and see what Jesus has to say to you. And then I'll take us into communion and invite the band up. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. We thank you that you invite us to dine at the table with you. And even as we sang in the last song we sang before we came up here, we sang of you being the only one, the one we build our our life on, our foundation, the one we trust. There's no one like you. And at our core, God, help us to go that way and live as if that's true. And would we, in fact, build our lives on your firm foundation? Would you fill us with your heart and send us with your love as we sang? And Jesus, where there has not been grace for us this evening, if there's still shame that's heavy or seeping in, would you, just, would you just again fill us with the grace of your spirit? And would we know above anything else that you are a God who loves us as we are right now? And as always, you invite us to align our allegiance with you to live, practicing the ways of Jesus in this world. Help us do that. To you be the glory. Amen. If this message encouraged you, let us know or share it with someone you know. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at kaleophx.com.